I myself am sanctified about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God, to be, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. Then I have a reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will be the venture of, I'm sorry, for I will venture to speak of anything except with Christ who has accomplished through to me, bring the Gentiles to the obedience by word of deed and by the power of signs and wonders of the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has been named, lest the build of someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. We're moving into the conclusion now of this letter to the, to the book of Romans that Paul has written. And uh, so let's do a brief sort of summary to catch us up. This is an important juncture in this letter. In chapters 1 through 11, Paul wrote about the promises of God's gospel as being this message of salvation that would go out to everyone without discrimination. There's this universal problem of human sin that every human must deal with. And God has provided a solution for that universal problem by sending his own son to bear the punishment that is due for that sin. He became sin so that we might receive his righteousness, which is kind of like the opposite of sin. We take his righteousness, he takes our sin. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the obedience that God is looking for. The obedience of faith is to repent of your sin and trust that Jesus is your righteousness. But how will someone be able to call upon the name of Jesus if they've never believed in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard of him? And how can they hear of him without someone telling them? And how would anybody be able to tell somebody about Jesus without being sent to that person with that message? The message of the gospel needs to go out to the Gentiles which is just another way of saying the nations, so that they can hear the gospel and obey it, which again means to repent and believe. So that's the goal of the church, to get this message out to the nations, then the church must be unified. So he spends some time working through some touchy ethical and cultural issues with those Christians in Rome from chapters 12 through the middle of 15, where we've just finished a couple weeks ago. He's reminding them that their quarrelsomeness, the division, is actually just a great hindrance to the mission that they've been called to. Not only is it ungodly, it's going to keep them from being able to give attention to the mission to which they've been called. They need to bear one another's burdens. They need to be humble. They need to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed them. Their unity in and around the gospel ought then to propel them outward into the nations with the message of the gospel, which is their mission. And we can tell now that Paul is beginning to wrap things up as he's moving into this section of Romans 15, 
because he's returning to two of the same issues that he talked about in the introduction of his letter. There's two things here in this passage that he mentions at the beginning of the book of Romans. First, he encourages the churches in Rome. Uh, verse 14 as we'll see, he, and Teresa just read for us, Teresa just read for us, they are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Well, if you look back at the intro to the letter uh, to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 8, he says this, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So Paul is encouraging this church in Rome with uh, this apostolic encouragement. Second, Paul identifies himself as the one who is sent into the nations. We see him doing that in verses 15 through 21. It's a major portion of today's sermon text. But he said the same thing in the intro. Romans chapter 1, verses 5 through 6 say this. We, speaking of himself, Paul, has received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, as the church in Rome, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So, in the, in the intro, as, is, as it is true here, he is returning to encouragement for the church and reminding them of his unique calling to bring the gospel to the nations. Why does Paul do that? Why does he bring up those two issues at the beginning and at the end? Well, they're a point of emphasis, but there's an important connection between those two contexts, those two concepts. They are intricately related. A healthy church is ascending church. The big idea for this morning's sermon is this. Healthy local churches should help unreached ethnic groups gain access to the only message that can save them. Healthy churches should help unreached ethnic groups gain access to the only message that can save them. We've got three points under this. First, healthy churches are marked by piety, doctrine, and discipleship. Verse 14. Second, Christ reaches the unreached through local churches. We'll see that in verses 15 through 19, a couple of subpoints. And then point three, unreached ethnic groups need to see and hear the gospel. Verses 20 to 21. That's the roadmap. Let's, let's pray before we get into it. Father, we're grateful for this local church, which is the fruit of the missions, no doubt, of people whose names we will never know. Uh, but we exist here as an outpost of your heavenly kingdom on earth due to faithful missionaries who've brought your gospel into the nations and brought it all the way here to Arizona. We are beneficiaries of your grace operating through human agents. Father, would you help us at Trinity continue to be the sort of church that you have called us to be, a welcoming church that aspires to health for the sake of sending folks out with the message of the gospel. Help us now, even as we dig into your word by your spirit, to desire that for ourselves and for this institution. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, point one. Healthy churches are marked by piety doctrine, and discipleship. We're just going to look at verse 14, which says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. 
Now, if you're tracking along, he actually has just sort of laid into these Roman Christians a little bit in chapters 12 and following, reminding them how to be unified, reminding them how to follow Christ's example of humility. But overall, Paul's encouraged about his brothers and sisters in Rome. He's not berating them. He's not threatening them. He expresses to them that he is convinced that they are full of goodness, overflowing with all knowledge, and capable of instructing one another. He believes, then, that they are a mature church. This is, the Paul, this is Paul's uh, evaluation of the churches in Rome. And he gives three distinct encouragements to explain why he believes that they are a mature church. Three things that help him to be satisfied about them as a church. Let's just consider these three things briefly in turn. First, he says they are full of goodness. Notice he says they are full of goodness. That is to say that they are opposed to all that is evil. They strive for righteousness. They have godly behavior and internal affections of the heart. There is goodness that marks them. A deep devotion to honor God and to give thanks to him, as Paul has reminded them throughout this section. They want to honor him with their lives. So in their callings, these individual Roman Christians, wherever they are called to be, teachers or bakers, painters, whatever their calling is, wherever that is, they are marked by Christian goodness in their spheres of responsibility and influence. So they are embracing their Christian duty in whatever areas they've been called to. That's what the word piety means. It's kind of an unusual word, not common, but I think it's worth preserving, so I'm using it. Piety is a love of God and love of his law which is expressed through prayer and worship. And it's also a love of neighbor, which is expressed through acts of charity and kindness and selflessness towards others. This is what Paul is calling the church in Rome to. This is what he's calling us to. They are devoted to God, and that leads them then to revere and to respect God and his law and to honor one another. He leaned into them a little bit, again, in those last chapters, 12 to 15, But really, in the final analysis, this is pretty minor stuff. He's really just trying to help them move from one degree of maturity to the next. He wants them to grow to become more like Christ's example of selflessness, of God-glorifying humility. So a healthy church, according to Paul, is marked by active piety. Second, he says they're filled with all knowledge. Filled with all knowledge surely does not mean that they are omniscient doesn't mean that they know all things. So what does Paul mean here? Well, I think in context, it means that they have a solid understanding of the Christian faith. Their knowledge is sufficient. They know all that they need to know pertaining to life and godliness in order to be a God-glorifying church. Paul was able to get really deep in this letter, got into some very challenging topics and issues theologically and ethically because he knows that this church in Rome is not a blank slate. He knows they're starting from a great place of knowledge. That's why he could dip into some of the most profound mysteries of the faith in this letter from chapters 1 through 11 in particular. So that's what we mean by doctrine. Doctrine is the knowledge of what the Bible teaches. We read the Bible to learn doctrine, which in turn helps us return to the Bible to understand it more fully and accurately. In order to become more like Jesus, we need to know who Jesus is and what he has called us to do. So a healthy church is marked by good doctrine. 
Third, he says that they are able to instruct one another. Able to instruct one another. This also could be translated as admonish. So they're also able to, to correct one another. Because of their goodness and their knowledge, they're able to instruct and correct one another. This is what we mean by discipleship. The members of the church are capable of building up one another in the faith. A discipleship is taking the initiative to intentionally do spiritual good to someone in order that they might become more like Jesus. Just to be clear, Paul has a unique calling. He's an apostle. There also are those who are in vocational ministry. They have a unique calling to minister in that regard, but all Christians are called to pursue what makes for mutual upbuilding, Paul has already told us. Discipleship is not just for experts. Discipleship is not something that you export or outsource to professionals. It is a normal part of the Christian life, building one another up in the faith. So please don't think that you need to be a sinless genius in order to engage in discipleship. You don't have to be perfectly good. You don't have to be perfectly knowledgeable. You have to be faithful. You have to have a sufficient knowledge of the gospel. And this is what we're about here at Trinity is helping to build people up into that. When someone begins to stray in their life or doctrine, we have what we need to enter into an awkward conversation and to bring it to their attention in a loving way, as Paul has done here in these last chapters, that it might be well-received in the way that Paul has done this for us for their upbuilding for the glory of God. So if you think that you're not prepared enough to get involved in disciple-making, you should probably just come to terms with that now. I don't know that there's a point at which you're like, okay, I've arrived. Like you can unplug from the matrix and be like, I know Kung Fu, I know discipleship. It's not quite the way that it works out. I don't think anybody ever feels totally sufficient to engage in discipleship and to be prepared to handle anything that comes at you. But I bet you will find that you are equipped in the, in the activity of doing the discipleship. You're called to the act of entering into the fray and God will equip you for that which he has called you to. So we, Trinity, aspires to be a healthy church in those ways, in terms of the piety, doctrine, and discipleship. We are not a perfect church. If you've been here, you know that that is true. When we say, though, that we are aspiring to be a healthy church, this is describing the sort of things that we're aiming at. This is our aspirational goal. Biblical faithfulness, active piety, strong doctrine, and consistent discipleship. These four streams are meant to mutually reinforce one another as an ecosystem of discipleship to help you pursue Christ. So gathered worship, the engine room of discipleship, what we're happening right now, community groups, one-to-one -one discipleship, and equip classes. Those four streams are helping us to pursue the mission that Christ has called us to. This is how we are pursuing the mission of making disciples. This is not to say that we have arrived in every way, but this is our ambition. In other words, Paul, speaking to this church in Rome, it's like, hey guys, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and you like people, so I think you're all going to be okay. You have received the gospel, it's there, it's doing its work amongst you there in the churches in Rome. Paul's satisfied that they are a healthy, mature church, and he wants to see more of that. He wants to see more healthy churches in places that the gospel has not yet been. That's his life's ambition and it's what Christ has already accomplished through Paul at this point in history. Notice second, in verses 15 through 19, Christ reaches the unreached through local churches. 
Uh, Paul here is shifting his focus from the church in Rome to speak more generally about his own ministry in churches across the region. And the first thing that I want to draw our attention to is in these first two sentences, these first two verses, 15 through 17, A, notice first that Christ invokes the worship of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit through humanity. Verses 15 through 17. Let's read those verses one more time. But on some points I have written to you very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. So Paul's satisfied, as we just saw, that there are good churches in Rome. He was bold enough, he says, to give some correction and instruction in some areas, even though he apparently has never been to Rome, taking a little bit of a risk there. But his boldness that he is writing from comes from the fact that he has been appointed by Christ as an apostle to the nations. In other words, this is what Christ has called him to do, is to help plant churches and help build up churches. And so that's what he's doing with this church in Rome. His ambition is to make sure that good churches get planted so that they can act as faithful outposts of Christ's kingdom on earth, declaring the good news and showing acts of love and peace. And so he's just writing them to remind these Christians in Rome of what they already know, maybe helping them apply it in more specificity, The word that translates in our ESV as Gentile, here and throughout 15, which comes up a lot, means ethnic group. Ethnic group. It's the nations. So Paul was uniquely called as a missionary to go out into the nations with this message of the gospel, and that is the grace that was given to him by God that he refers to at the beginning and the end of the book of Romans. He's been given this grace by God in order to be an apostle to the nations. Did you notice in these verses, how much of that Old Testament worship language is in there in verse 16? It almost comes out of nowhere. Paul writes as if he was serving as a priest in the temple, laboring in the spread of the gospel in order to bring the nations to God as a sacrifice. This is the way that he conceptualizes his job as a missionary, an apostle, an evangelist. Paul understands himself to be an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. In preaching the gospel in the nations, some of those who have heard it now are being converted to the faith, and now they're being presented as living sacrifices to God, holy and acceptable, as Romans 12 talks about. Now they are heirs of life everlasting. And Paul got to play a role in that. Paul got to play a role in that. Notice, the activity of God here for a moment. Let's put the emphasis on God's action here just for a second. Notice how the three persons of the triune God are mentioned in verse 16. Paul is assisting Christ, the high priest, in service of God's gospel so that the nations might be made an acceptable offering to God the Father, being sanctified in the Holy Spirit. Let me just simplify that a little bit, make it briefer, because I want us to marvel at the beauty of the gospel here, all three persons of the Trinity acting in unity. We might be tempted to glance over this here, so let me put it this way. 
those far from God are made acceptable to the Father through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul, as an evangelist, as a missionary, is engaged in that. The activity of God is what Paul is engaged in. The strength and the power of Christ, the strength and the power of the Father, the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit are one and the same. All three persons of the one God are actively, unfailingly involved in orchestrating and accomplishing and applying the gospel in the nations. This is the activity of the triune God. God promised that this was going to happen, and Paul is engaged in being one of the ones who gets to help it come to pass. At the end of Isaiah, chapter 66, that prophet foretold of a time when God would gather all nations and tongues, his glory would be declared among the nations, and believers would be drawn in from the nations as an offering to the Lord. And when that promise was made, 900 years before the time of Christ, it probably seemed like an impossible task. What are the odds that that is actually going to happen? But as Paul witnessed the Lord's faithfulness to fulfill these promises that might have looked impossible in centuries past, he is witnessing the Lord's faithfulness in bringing people into his church, into his people from the nations. And as he's observing this, it's giving Paul hope that all of God's promises are going to be fulfilled they would all be answered in and through Jesus Christ. And so for those of you that were here like a month ago for our Missions Sunday, we had an equip hour over in the Education Center and we got to hear some amazing testimonies of ways that this is happening right now. People being brought to the gospel in the nations across the world and we, like Paul, to some small degree, get to play a part in that. The Lord is just as much to work as work today as he was in Paul's day. God is still drawing the nations to himself, and he's allowing us to be involved in it. And so I think we begin to see how Paul's actually pretty stoked. (laughs) If he's going to boast in anything, this is what he's going to boast about. God was saving people from eternal death and fulfilling ancient prophecies through his ministry. And so Paul got a front seat to see those promises of the Lord coming to pass. And he describes that process in verses 18 through 19. B, the unreached are brought to faith by word and deed, verses 18 through 19. For I will not to venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ bringing the Gentiles to obedience. It's a phrase that comes up a lot in the book of Romans. This obedience of faith means people from the nations are being converted to faith in Jesus Christ. This is the obedience of the Gentiles, believing in the gospel, believing in the Messiah. And Paul is involved in that. So Paul is not boasting here that he's such an amazing apostle, that he's making all this stuff happen. But what he is genuinely excited about is that he has a part that he is playing in God's plan. I don't know that you can get too excited about glory in God's grace and getting to share that with others. And Paul here is excited about it. But notice how Christ has used Paul. He shows us by word and deed. By word and deed. So through his preaching and through his actions, Christ is using him to get the gospel out into the nations. 
And verse 19 might be clarifying what that means, word and deed. Look at verse 19. It says, signs and wonders. Signs and wonders are miracles that attract attention to God and his purposes. This is the same language that we see used in the book of Exodus. Uh, Israel was redeemed out of Egypt through the power of signs and wonders, those ten plagues through which Israel was redeemed out of Egypt. Signs and wonders. And we read actually about this in the book of Acts. Paul was engaged in involving some, some miraculous things like healing the sick, raising the dead, delivering those from demonic oppression. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, says that those signs and wonders that the apostle Paul was doing are acts of true apostles. Those apostolic signs and wonders, along with his ordinary pastoral ministry and preaching and power of the Spirit of God, were the means through which Christ was bringing the nations to faith, through word and deed. And he says it's from Jerusalem. Notice the geographical information here. He says it's from Jerusalem where the good news of Christ's resurrection was first spread. As we talked about last Sunday on Easter, those women went to the empty tomb and they recognized there in Jerusalem that it was empty. Paul says it went from there all the way to Illyricum. Paul was able to travel and fulfill the ministry of the gospel of Christ. I didn't know where Illyricum was either. I'm assuming that you don't. Uh, And so I didn't know why that was meant to be impressive until I had to look up a map. Uh, So I looked it up, and it's in modern-day Alberia. And I don't know where Alberia is either. Geography is not my strongest category in Jeopardy. So I'm going to be of somewhat of assistance to you. Here's a map. This is the region around the time when Paul was writing. So you can see Jerusalem on the right-hand side there. And then Illyricum is up there in the middle. Paul is writing this letter from Corinth, which is here. And he's writing it to Rome, which is there. And we'll see next week in the passage that Paul is hoping to go back to Jerusalem to deliver something, and then he wants to go to Rome. Ultimately, though, his final destination is to go to Spain, which you can see on the map there. But what Paul is saying here is that he has circled around all of those areas that you can see there between Jerusalem and Illyricum, all the way around the Mediterranean. He's been to all those places, and he has helped spread the gospel. He has planted churches. Everywhere he went, he made sure that churches were planted and nurtured. We don't know exactly how many churches Paul helped plant, but we think it's probably at least 14 through that Mediterranean region. Antioch, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Ephesus, many others. So the gospel is is spread to the unreached through the ministry of evangelists or missionaries, and then shortly thereafter, churches are planted. They grow, they blossom out of that fertile soil of the gospel. Churches like the ones in Rome to whom Paul is writing, which now, because they have the gospel, have become healthy and mature. And once that's accomplished, Paul's ready then to move on to the next location. Okay, you guys have got a, you've got a church, you're good. I want to move on to what's next because his ambition, he tells us, is to reach those who are unreached. Third, unreached ethnic groups need to see and hear the gospel. Verses 20 to 21. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, 
lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Again, Paul, Paul is unique in his apostolic calling. He was an apostle to the nations called by Jesus Christ for this purpose. So not everyone was called to do what Paul did. He traveled, he laid a foundation in sharing the gospel, training up local elders, deacons, and then he turned that over to them so that they could be a sort of self-sustaining, independent church, and then he moved on to the next thing. We know that the name of Christ must continue to be preached in healthy churches where he's already been named. So we don't want to get off balance here and say we need to stop paying attention to where we're at and only focus on the unreached people groups. We have responsibility here as well, let me just assure you. Just because the gospel has arrived somewhere doesn't mean the work is finished. Christian missions, though, aims at building healthy, long-term, sustainable churches. Christian missions aims at building healthy, long-term, sustainable churches. Not just counting decisions, uh, not just making baptisms or trying to check uh, an unreached ethnic group off of a list of unreached ethnic groups. There's much more to it than that. The message is, believe me, the message is urgent, but we're not aiming at irresponsible, rapid growth so much as faithful presence of the gospel in the form of healthy churches, health that will last for generations. If you like missions, you should value mature biblical churches that are marked by piety and doctrine and discipleship. They're related to one another. Paul is not dunking on those pastors that he has left with all those churches across the Mediterranean. He's not like, you know, you guys are just kind of second-class Christians because you're not pioneers in the way that he is. He's not trying to shame them, not trying to make them feel lame. It's not at all what Paul is trying to communicate. That much is obvious to us just through the fact that he wrote this letter to encourage the Romans. But Paul's unique ambition was to go where Christ had not yet been named. In verse 15, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 15, verse 23, that we'll actually look at in more detail next Sunday, Paul says there's no room left for him to work in these regions. So essentially, he's, already, he's done the work in the Mediterranean. He's done what he can do around there, and now he wants to move further upward into Europe and across over into the Atlantic Ocean. Paul's goal, though he was uniquely gifted and called to it, is a part of the responsibility of the church. So the mission of the church, the great commission that Jesus gives to his disciples and to us by extension in Matthew 28 is to go into the nations, make disciples of all nations, and that's what Paul's about. Missions in its purest, most narrow form is taking the gospel to a place where Christ has not yet been named. So here's a, here's a definition of missions that I've found to be helpful. This is how Craig Shepard defines it. Shepard is a professor of, of missions at Reformed Theological Seminary. He's also a, a missionary in Indonesia. He says this, Missions is the plan and act of God for redeeming and making disciples from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation by sending his people to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, to show them the gracious, redeeming love of a glorious God, and to organize them into biblical worshiping churches. I think that is a helpful definition 
that accurately reflects the hope and the activity of the Apostle Paul. I think it's helpful because it captures what Paul has talked about here, that mission of proclaiming the gospel in the nations, showing God's love, so glorifying God both in word and in deed, proclaiming and showing, seeing and hearing, all with an eye towards getting folks into good, mature Christians so that that gospel can be preserved, upheld, protected, defended, and confirmed. Paul hadn't spoken to every individual from Jerusalem to Illyricum, but he knew that there are good churches there and available. And so as an apostle, he's trusting that the gospel would be at work in those churches. There would be many witnesses to Jesus in those areas. And so his ambition was to go to those ethnic groups who we see in chapter 15 over and over again referred to as Gentiles, who had not yet been reached with this news of the gospel. Now, we might think, uh, after 2,000 years of church history, surely everybody's been reached with the gospel by now. It's been 2,000 years. Seems like enough time. Surely every ethnic group now has heard of who Jesus is and what he did, but that's actually not true. The Joshua Project is an organization that is dedicated to missions efforts, particularly those uh, missionaries that are pursuing groups that are on the pioneering edges of the world, those who have not yet been reached with the gospel, those in the frontier. They define frontier people groups as those groups that have less than 0.1% or fewer who identify with Jesus in any way. So one out of 1,000 might be Christian. There are at least 2 billion, maybe even 3 billion, people who fit into that measurement. Of everyone alive today, 25% live in a people group where there is almost no opportunity to hear about Jesus. That's about 25% of humanity that is alive right now. So here's a map of the progress of the gospel organized by people group from the Joshua Project. You can see that most of those red areas, those are the areas of greatest need. Most of those are in Southwest or Southeast Asia, North Africa. Those are areas where people will be born and die without having anyone there to reach them with the gospel. And I am an Arizona native surrounded by the gospel since my birth. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around this. There's a lot of people from other ethnicities, nations here. This is probably not unbelievable to you. You know you have come face to face with the deep need that is present in other countries. But Trinity has a strong history of highly valuing missions ever since her beginning. And right now we support work in Scotland and in South Asia, Philippines, Indonesia. And we support two efforts with international students who come to the States in order to study in order to go back to their home country. And so we have the nations coming to our doorstep. And so we support missionaries who train those international students with the gospel with the hopes that they'll return with that zeal for the gospel and bring that back to the country from which they came so that the gospel can go and do its work in those areas. Maybe the Lord is prompting you to consider whether global missions is something that you should be personally involved in. If that's possible, the first thing that you should do is find an elder and tell him. 
churches are the ones who send missionaries. And we would love to be able to help you think through that and pray through that, to think about what that might look like, what are the opportunities. And then you should recognize that if you are called, there is a lot of training involved. Cross-cultural missions is very challenging, and it would not be helpful for you to go without some serious study and training. It's something that you really have to be dedicated to. It is a noble calling, but it is a, a difficult task. And we'd be glad to help you think through that and pray through that if you just come talk to one, any one of the number of the elders. In the meantime, if you think maybe sometime in the future, that's something that could be on your radar, here's what you can do. Love your local church right now. Because when you go in missions, that is what missions is. It's loving a local church in a different part of the world. And if you can't do it here, it's going to be difficult for you to do it over there. It's only more difficult. In order to fulfill the Great Commission, as Christ has called us, we have to go to the nations. There is a crying need in these areas that you see on the map. But going there is not what all Christians are called to do. We do also need to maintain faithful gospel presence where Christ's name has been already named. That's why we're involved in a church planting effort with other like-minded churches here in the valley called The Grove. We want to make sure that there are mature biblical churches here in the valley too. We need to maintain this frontier here. As you remember that map I showed you earlier, Paul's missionary journeys, here is what the Unreached People Group map looks like there today. There's a lot of red there. There's a lot of red, there's a lot of yellow. There should be an illustration to us that it's not enough to simply check a nation off of a list. We need to support faithful churches in those areas for the long haul so that the name of Christ doesn't become just a distant memory in the places where he's been named. Paul was satisfied that the churches in Rome were good. He was bold enough, of course, to touch on some difficult theological and ethical issues, apparently, even though he's never been to Rome yet. But Paul's boldness comes from the fact that he has been appointed by Christ as an apostle to the nations. And it was his life's goal, his ambition, to preach the gospel to nations in places where Jesus has not yet confessed as Lord. And in that way, in so doing, Christ was fulfilling those messianic prophecies from Isaiah and his own great commission that he gave to the church to go into the nations and making disciples. That Old Testament reference that we see in the last verse in this portion of the text comes from Isaiah, which is the background of the book of Romans for sure. It comes from a part of Isaiah, as we read in our call to worship text this morning, that foretells the inclusion of the nations through the work of a suffering servant who would bear away the sin of his people. Let's read it one more time. Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15. Behold, my servant, this is Jesus Christ, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So that old prophecy 
being fulfilled in and through Paul is the same mission that you and I and Trinity Bible Church are involved in. Christ was accomplishing that prophecy through the missionary efforts of Paul. He's still accomplishing it today. And he invites us and commissions us even to preach the gospel where Christ is not yet named. Not everybody needs to go, but this is something that Trinity Bible Church does need to continue to value and to support and to remind ourselves of the importance of it. This is why we pray for missionaries every Sunday. This is an important aspect of the mission of the church, is taking the gospel to the unreached. And if any of you have any sort of inkling, prompting of the Spirit, thinking maybe this is something that I should be involved in. Do you see the great need? And you want to consider it? Glad to talk to you after the service. Send me an email. I'll talk to anyone in another, another email, uh, another elder. Glad to talk to you about it. In the meantime, let us as a church continue to help unreached ethnic groups gain access to the only message that can save them. Christ is worthy, and he will get the glory that he is due, and he lets us play a part in that. Thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.